I want to now take a little bit of time to turn our attention to God's Word. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, um, but before we get there, I want to give us a bit of an introduction. So last year, uh, my family went camping in the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa, and while we were there, we went to this bird show uh, where they had uh, everyone sitting out on the side of a mountain, and they had various raptors that they would have fly through and do different things, and One of the highlights for my kids in particular was the dog. There was a Jack Russell Terrier there who would interact with the birds. Uh, He wasn't supposed to be part of the show, but he belonged to the hosts. And he learned how to steal the food from the hawks. And he learned how to jump in the water before the fish eagle got there. And he learned how to point for the peregrine falcon. But then at one point in the show, the dog disappeared. He ran and jumped into the little snack stand and hid out for the rest of the show. And so the hosts explained that the reason he did this was because the next bird that was coming out was the spotted eagle owl. And at some time previously, the eagle owl had latched its talons into the dog's back, lifted it off the ground, and dropped it. And the dog, from then on, was watching out for that owl. So even the word owl, as soon as the host said, the next bird is the owl, that was what triggered the dog to run and hide. Like, this dog had learned that that bird was dangerous. (laughs) Now, the reason I'm using this introduction is because our passage today talks to us about being taken captive. It talks to us about being seized and captured, not by a bird, not by a hijacker or a predator, but by ideas, by ideologies. And the reason these ideologies are dangerous is because they... Turn us away from Christ. My title this morning, if you're taking notes, is Ideas That Ensnare Christians. Our text is Colossians 2, 6 through 10, um, but let me just give us a little more background into this passage. Let's go back in time together. Let's go to the ancient city of Colossae. Let's meet the people there. Let's uh, meet their pastor and go around their city, see what it was like. Colossae was a city in Phrygia, it's part of today, western Turkey, and a few hundred years before this epistle, in the 4th century BC, Colossae was becoming a very powerful, influential city. It was at the crossroads of two major trade routes. Its inhabitants did very well in business because of that. They traded in wool, especially purple wool, and they gained great wealth as a result of this. Colossae was, at that point, a glorious city. The Greek historians write about it, Herodotus, Xenophon. They talk about Colossae as this up-and-coming city. Famous Persian kings like Xerxes and Cyrus the Great stopped by and visited this city. It was a place to be. But then the Roman era came, and everything changed. The Romans built a new road. And it bypassed Colossae. It went through Laodicea, 15 kilometers away. And the merchants and the trade started to bypass Colossae. And Colossae withered and became an insignificant rural town. It drops out of history. And by the first century, Colossae, what was a bigger city, has now been this tiny little town that is nearly forgotten. It is a has-been It's trying to coast on its long past glory days. Maybe you've visited a town like that before. You've stopped in, see what the hype is all about, and it's pretty obvious that its best days are behind it. 
You stop in, you buy a snack, you drive on. There's nothing there. That's Colossae. You can imagine that its citizens were looking for a comeback. They were trying to find a way to make Colossae great again. (laughs) It was no surprise that they were quick to look for some secret, some new way to have that former greatness back, some new idea, some promise of success. They were very enamored by those. And so the city was full of innovative ideologies, philosophies, and beliefs. Colossae might have lost its place as a marketplace for trade, but it was very busy in the marketplace of ideas. None of us would even know the name of Colossae, unless you're a Western Asia Minor history major, except because there was a church there. We know about it because of this book in our Bibles. And this church was planted by a Christian man named Epaphras. Paul talks about it in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, Epaphras, our beloved bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, He had brought the gospel to them in Colossae, and verse 6 tells us that the Colossians heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, and that the gospel was constantly bearing fruit and increasing in them. Most likely, uh, Epaphras had sat under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, uh, which was about uh, 150 miles away, and then went back to Colossae, perhaps his hometown and started a church there. It seems Paul himself had never been there. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, that he had not personally seen their faces. But Epaphras went, he starts the church, he disciples people there, and he loves the church in his town. Chapter 4, verse 13 tells us that Epaphras also had a deep concern for the people in Laodicea and Heropolis. Maybe he planted churches in those towns as well. What I appreciate about Epaphras is that he's so little known, and yet what we know about him is he's faithful. He's one of those servants of Christ who was a pastor, an evangelist, a church planter, but he's not an apostle. He probably didn't do any of the sign gifts that the apostles did. We don't hear anything about his abilities. What we do hear about is his submission to Christ. We hear that he loved the Lord. He probably didn't have the same formal training that the Apostle Paul did. He hadn't personally walked with the Lord Jesus during his time on earth, but he used what he had. What we hear about him is that he served the Lord faithfully. And Paul appreciates this about him too. Paul comments on how he's devoted to service of the master, and he uses this term, fellow bondservant, and fellow servant of Christ. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. This is an expression that Paul only uses of three people, himself, Timothy, and Epaphras. What a great way to be known, a doulos, a slave of Christ. When I read this about Epaphras, it makes me say, Lord, help me be an Epaphras. Help me not get hung up on what I don't have And get busy using what I do have. The ways that you have entrusted things to me, help me to use them for your servant as a faithful slave, as a faithful servant of Christ. Well, at the time of the epistle, it had been about five years since the church began. Paul, at this point, is in Rome, in prison. But 
where we, when we get to chapter 4, we find out that Epaphras is with Paul. He is in Rome, and he's sending his greetings back to Colossae. We remember that Paul's first imprisonment was more a house arrest. He was able to have visitors. And so we can put this together and surmise Epaphras had left Colossae for some reason, had traveled 1,200 miles over land and sea to get to Rome to be with Paul. It wasn't for Shepherd's Conference. He's traveling this way because he's concerned about something going on in his church, and he needs Paul to help counsel him through it. What was the thing that was on his mind? What was burdening Epaphras so much that he would leave his church and spend 25 days traveling just to get to Rome? Well, the issue was his church was being enticed by worldly ideas. That was the burden on Epaphras' heart. Paul hears about it. He's also concerned, and he writes this epistle. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he steers them back to the true gospel, away from error. And that's really the heart of the book of Colossians. Do not let anyone lead you away from Christ. Don't let anyone convince you that he's less than glorious. There's some debate about what the specific error is facing the Colossian church. As often happens, the error has not passed the test of time. It's not around anymore. But the response to the error still is. The truth that corrected it is still here. And we can read Colossians and extrapolate a little bit about what the errors were that were facing the Colossians, especially chapter 2. Paul talks about some things that sound like Greek philosophy, chapter 2, verse 8. We'll look at that in a minute. He'll make other statements that seem to be correcting Gnosticism. There are also some hints of Jewish legalism. People were criticizing the Christians for not observing certain feasts and festivals and holy days. But there are also traces of mysticism and worship of angels and visions in verse 18. And then we see hints of asceticism in verse 21 and 22. That's the idea that the spirit was purified by punishing the body. And it's possible that some false teachers had somehow rolled all of those ideas into some complicated and and elaborate religious practice. But I think it's maybe more likely that it's the way that we find errors today. A smattering of ideas one after another just bombarding them, rapid fire, one on top of the next, continuing to hit them. The reason I say that is because of Paul's emphasis and and use of the, the phrase, no one. It sounds like he's talking about different groups of people, each with their own idea to lead people astray, to capture and deceive the Colossians. Just glance over with me at verses 3 and 4 of Colossians 2. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, there are many people who have plausible arguments that will delude you into thinking Christ is insufficient for directing your lives. So then verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. This group of people will try to undermine your Christology. They'll make an argument from philosophy. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There's another group. They're going to argue on grounds of Jewish tradition, rituals. They're going to judge you for not performing them. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. There's another group still. They're going to deceive you with mystical elements and religious experiences. They're going to offer you a higher elevated spiritual plane. And all those groups might entangle you, but there's one more to watch out for, verse 20. 
Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees and regulations? You might even entangle yourselves. You might get yourself into error by adding in regulations about avoiding certain foods and not touching certain things to become more spiritual. Paul's corrective is all of these arguments are persuasive, but they'll all delude you. Don't be deceived by any of them. That's his point. I think it reminds us, doesn't it, of how errors present themselves to us today, one after another. The contemporary issues, hard and fast, continuing to come, all seemingly different, all offering something that sounds new, but they're all really united in one goal, which is to take us away from Christ. What are those issues in 2023? We see so many of them, so many flavors, so many varieties of human wisdom that all intend to lead us away from Christ. Some of them are blatant. Some are deceptions about sexual identity or gender pronouns. Some are more subtle, like a new definition of justice or the importance of corporate worship. Some are extremely misleading. They're coming from very well-respected teachers in Christian bookstores. I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Discernment is not the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. There are many ideas in our day that we're comfortable interacting with. We hear, we're familiar with, and we don't realize that they have talons, that they will sink into our backs. And it is for that reason that we need the book of Colossians. So with that, let me read our text for this morning. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10. I'm reading from the NASB. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete." And he is the head over all rule and authority. Bow your heads for a moment as I pray for us. Father, as we hear this passage and strive to understand and know it well, Lord, please help us to to know it clearly. Help us not to be misled and deceived, Lord. I pray that the words that I speak this morning are not my words, not uh, words that I was taught by a person, but uh, your words through me, Father. Uh, Please continue to guide us and guard us from error. Help us to be able to see and recognize the things that lead us away from Christ. Lord, help us as uh, hearers of your word uh, to follow you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are taking notes, my outline for this morning is three directions for avoiding the deceptions that lead us from Christ. Three directions that for avoiding the deceptions that lead us from Christ. After all, we don't want to be ensnared, do we? We don't want to be ignorant of spiritual danger. We want to know what to look for, and this passage will tell us three of them, three directions. We're going to see where to walk, what to beware, and who makes us whole. We'll go through those in detail. First, where to walk. When I first moved to Johannesburg, I had to learn from some of my South African friends where to go and where not to go. There are parts of downtown Johannesburg that sound really nice. Hillbrow, oh, that sounds nice. Ah, I saw some pictures, some architecture there, and people are like, do not even try. (laughs) Don't even try. You are asking yourself for trouble. 
This is similar. Paul is telling the Colossians where to walk. Keep walking on solid ground, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. These are, I believe, the key verses of this whole book, and it sets the tone for everything that is to follow. We'll spend a little more time here because of its central uh, significance. In these verses, Paul gives us his main concern for the Colossians. They must continue walking in Christ. Notice, by the way, that he isn't concerned that they don't know Christ. He's writing to Christians here. These are believers. They've received Christ, but just as they have received Christ already, they need to continue walking in Christ. In other words, Christians never move on from Christ. The way we started our Christian walk in repentance and faith is how we continue in our Christian walk of repentance and faith. In the same way that they were taught the truths of Scripture to be saved, they need to continue to be taught the truths of Scripture to grow. You can imagine these Colossians. They were pagans. They were not coming from a Jewish background, most of them. And when they were saved, it would have changed their whole life. There would have been a lot of pagan practices that had to go right? The, the way they ate and what they did at the temple and what they did with their idols all had to be completely jettisoned. All these things that had been part of their life were a huge change, radically uh, affecting the way that they lived their life in their early years. But Paul's saying, you need to continue being changed by the gospel. Chapter 1 verse 6 tells us about their testimony that they heard of the gospel and they understood the grace of God in truth but now they need to continue understanding God's grace. We saw that the gospel was continually bearing fruit and increasing in them, and that's great. And Paul is saying, don't let it stop. Let it continue to grow in you. Maybe you think about your own conversion, how the Lord saved you. Some of you may have had a very dramatic testimony where God brought you from a very wicked, sinful lifestyle and brought you to salvation. And you came to be aware of your sin, repent of it, confess it, forsake it, trust in Christ, be saved. But we need to continue in that. Even if you were saved from a more moral lifestyle, that same pattern of dependence on Christ, of recognizing your desperation, should characterize your life as a believer, relying on him alone. But often what happens is that Christians who have truly believed in Christ, they're genuinely saved, still think they need something else for the rest of life, that Christ is not sufficient. The thinking goes like this, Jesus saved me from my sins, I'm a believer now, I'm going to heaven, but when it comes to dealing with my anxiety, I need help somewhere else. When I need to make a big decision about a career move, I get advice somewhere else. When I need relationship advice, I open my browser instead of my Bible, right? Those things are separate from my relationship with Christ. Those things are in a different category, a different compartment, right? It couldn't have anything to do with repentance and faith, how I think through those issues of life. But verse 6 tells us Christians need to walk in him. What does this mean? What does it mean to walk in him? The word walk means to live your life. It's used both in positive and negative ways in the New Testament to describe how someone lives, what governs them, who they serve, ultimately. How you walk includes things like how you work and what you daydream about, who you like and who you dislike, how you spend your money, 
what makes you laugh, what you read, your habits of eating and recreating and entertainment. How you walk is your marriage and your parenting. It's your relationship with your extended family. It's your attitudes and your desires and your aspirations. It's your conversations with believers and unbelievers. It's your response to temptation. It's your commitment to the church. That's all encompassed in this word, walk. Romans 8 talks about walking according to the flesh or the spirit. 1 John says we can walk in the light or in the darkness. Ephesians 2 says that we once walked in sin, but now we are to walk in Christ, in love, as children of light, by faith. And that leads to a question we should ask ourselves. Does the way I walk and conduct my life show that I am governed by Christ? Does it point to the lordship of Christ? Where do I walk? What do I walk in? If people were to say what characterizes my life, would they say Christ? Paul is concerned that these Colossian believers have received Christ, but then are not pressing on in Christ. And he he uses three metaphors to describe walking in him in verse 7. First, he uses a horticultural metaphor describing a tree. He has believers in mind once again. They're firmly rooted in Christ. They've been saved. God did that at salvation, planted those roots. But then he says, you need to grow as a tree. You need to continue growing. The verb tense there is something that's done with ongoing implications. You have been rooted, but you need to also grow up. He also talks about being built up. The work of sanctification, a building metaphor. You're like a building that's been started. You've got the foundation. You may have some walls, but you can't stop there. You need to continue being built up. Don't stop. And then he uses a legal metaphor. That word established there has a legal sense to it. It's the expression that you would use to describe a contract that had been signed. It was a completed legal document. We notice that Americans often talk about how the U.S. is moving away from the Constitution. But we can apply that analogy to our own lives. When we were saved, that Christ wrote a new Constitution for our life right? A new set of of, uh, significant documents that govern how we live. But do we follow it? Do we live according to it? Do we live by that? What good is that if it has been written and established, but we don't follow it? All of these things in verse 7 are describing the actions in sanctification of obedience for a believer. They're still taking place for all of us. In Christ, we walk. In Christ, we are being built up. We are growing up. We are being established. That's our walk. Every one of us as Christians is on an infinite journey to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to become like him in every part of our being, to continue to be progressively sanctified and to serve him with every part of us. And if you want a quick test of how your walk is going, you see one at the end of verse 7. He says, one of the results of walking in Christ is gratitude. So check yourself on that. Christians should be full of gratitude to God for the gospel that he has saved them with. There are people who are grateful and aren't walking in Christ, but you can't be walking in Christ and not be grateful. People who are walking in Christ are going to be profoundly grateful for the grace of God to them. Does that characterize you? Are you overflowing with gratitude? Do you have a greater appetite for his grace? Do you say, I know I still have a lot of ways to grow and I want to continue I want to continue to mature. Maybe if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've settled into a rhythm that's very comfortable, but not growing much, not being built up into Christ. 
yeah, I've kind of got the basic things down, and I read my Bible occasionally. I even go to church on Super Bowl Sunday. But the Word doesn't really convict me of my sin all that often. I don't confess too many things very often. Brother, sister, if that's you, don't leave the tree stunted. Don't leave the building half-built. Don't have the Constitution shelved somewhere and not governing your life. We need to be built up in Christ. And that's the theme of this book. Paul is going to warn us of specific errors in chapter 2 because those things keep us from walking in Christ. He's going to give examples of what walking in Christ looks like in chapter 3, putting off immorality, uh, having a new nature of compassion, walking in Christ as wives and husbands and parents and children and servants and masters. He talks about spiritual disciplines of prayer, thankfulness, conduct towards outsiders, edifying speech. Those are all examples in chapter 3. But the theme of this book, if you want to put it in three words, is walk in Christ. That's the theme. So these warnings then, what we see next, are dangerous because they keep us from walking in Christ. That's why they're bad. They keep us from Christ. Don't fall for anything that does that. Point number two, what to beware. What to beware. Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Once again, don't be taken captive. Literally, it means don't be kidnapped, right? It's the word used to describe the Babylonians taking the Israelites into captivity. Don't let yourself be a prisoner of war. Don't be stolen like plunder. Don't be prey. How? Through philosophy. That is what is trying to capture you. This word only appears here in the New Testament. But in Greek literature, this word is everywhere because the Greeks love their philosophy, They were huge on philosophy. Literally, it means loving wisdom. And the Greeks loved the idea of thinking new ways about the universe. They loved to speculate about God and about nature and about man and try to find innovative ways of thinking about reality. And they believed, like many people do today, that a man can think his way to ultimate truth. The people of Colossae had been enamored by these ideas these philosophies had sounded appealing to them. There would have been leading philosophers in their city, on their streets, that everybody would talk about. But Paul does not love this kind of wisdom. He calls it empty deception, deceit. He says this philosophy is a trick to mislead people. It's like a pickpocket trying to pull a fast one on you. Why? Because Paul knows where these ideas come from. He tells us two things that they are and one thing that they're not. First, he tells us that these ideas originate from the mind of men, not from God. They're based on human tradition. They are man's wisdom. Most of human philosophy is an idea that originated with a person. It's people trying to explain truth apart from God. I like how Francis Schaeffer says this, that a man cannot begin with himself and arrive at ultimate reality. Only in God is truth known. Only through the special revelation from God can we know truth. Paul also tells the Colossians to reject these philosophies because, second, they're based on the elemental principles or spirits of the world. It could be a couple different possibilities of what he means here. He could be saying that this is naturalism. It's an explanation of the world that just defines everything in terms of things that can be touched, earth, air, water, fire, similar to our scientism today. 
Or he could be saying something more insidious, that there's a, a spiritual influence behind those philosophies, that the evil one is deceiving people through these philosophies. Both would be true. But the main reason for rejecting these philosophies, this so-called wisdom, is that it does not begin with Christ. It's not from Christ, he says, rather than according to Christ. These are ways of thinking that don't begin with Christ as creator. They don't describe God as holy. They don't talk about man as sinful. They don't see Christ as God incarnate. And they don't see grace as the means to salvation. Does that sound like a philosophy we have today? Or a whole bunch of them? Friends, we're in the same situation today. We're constantly barraged by ideas that do not start with biblical truth, but with the wisdom of men, and lead us away from Christ. We shouldn't be surprised when we have medical experts who tell us that we're just a collection of cells, and therefore we don't have a soul, and we we shouldn't worry about aborting children or euthanizing people who are tired of life. If we have politicians who reject the sin nature of men, we shouldn't be surprised when they propose social solutions for spiritual problems. When we have scientists who reject the truth that God created Adam in his image, we shouldn't be surprised that there are assertions that man can create himself in his own image. One of the things that I do at our counseling training course at Antioch is look at the origins of many of the leading psychologies of our day. And what we see with all of them is they all start with presuppositions that the problem with man is not sin. It's something else. So the counsel they give you is how to deal with that apart from sin. Maybe the problem is your upbringing or your brain chemistry or relationship with your dad or uh, your uh, empty love cup, but all of those are human ideas. And yeah, you can bolt on Christian concepts and Bible verses to that, but if the core ideas are not according to Christ, then they will deceive you and rob you and take you captive. They will never lead you to salvation. You see, in the marketplace of ideas, whether it's the first century or 2023, there are counterfeits and scams all over the place. And Paul's concern for these Colossians was that they would hear these shiny new philosophies of their day and say, yes, Jesus saved me, but I need some other wisdom for life. These Gnostics have some sort of special knowledge that I don't have, and I don't want to miss that. The Jewish experts of the law, they think that we should be observing kosher laws and the new moon festival and the Sabbaths. And, you know, I think my spiritual life would benefit if I did some of that. And these mystics talk about their visions and the angels that are serving them. And I kind of want to make sure I'm not missing out over there. Does this sound familiar? Here's how it sounds today. You know, someone was just telling me about a new meditation technique to help relieve anxiety. I think it's worth a try. I read some family expert online who says it doesn't really matter who's the leader in the home. These preachers on TV want to show you how to live the really full life that God wants you to have. Or my therapist tells me my panic attacks don't have anything to do with my spiritual life that I'm neglecting. And they're just trying to work on finding the right medication. You see, Paul is telling the Colossians and us that we're surrounded by ideas that are empty and deceptive. They will take you captive They will imprison you in falsehood because they are engineered by an enemy who will do anything to keep believers from walking in Christ. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. We don't have to be captured by them. We just have to know what to look for. And you can recognize these ideas by the same telltale signs. They come from the ideas of men, not from God. 
They're in books and journal articles and podcasts and even sometimes sermons that point to the authority of man instead of the authority of God. And they speak of the world as though God doesn't exist. Or maybe they talk about God in a different way than Scripture does. He's not all holy. He's not all knowing. He's not almighty. Identify these ideas. Look for them so that they don't take you captive. I would encourage you to think about the ideas that may have captured your attention. What ideologies do you find appealing that are not consistent with Christ? Don't let them kidnap you. Well, we've seen where to walk. We've seen what to beware. Number three, who makes us whole? To beware these snares, we need to recognize why we fall for them in the first place. Here's why. The reason why Christians in Colossae and in Joburg and in SoCal turn to worldly ideas is because we feel like we're missing something. We feel inadequate and we feel incomplete. We realize we don't have the wisdom to make that career move. We're coming up short in parenting our kids. We lack the spark for our marriage. We can't do it all. And so when the world offers a solution to help with that weakness, we're enticed by them. But if we're not going to go there, if we're not going to go to the marketplace of human ideologies and philosophies for help, what do we do? How do we stop this cycle of feeling inadequate and feeling like we're missing out and turning somewhere that's deceitful? The answer, we need to comprehend the fullness of Christ. Verses 9 and 10. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. There is a distinct contrast between these philosophies, which were described as empty deceptions, and Christ, who is the fullness of deity. What will keep the Colossians from being captured by these man-made ideologies? Beholding the fullness of Christ and seeing how incomplete everything else is by comparison. Let's take a moment and just behold him as well. Paul corrects many errors with just a few words here. He tells us, in Christ is all the fullness of deity. He's not just God-like, as the cults say. He is God. He has all the perfections and authority of the Father. When we see Christ, we have seen the Father. We also see his deity settled in bodily form. He's not a spirit. This doctrine of the incarnation confronts the Gnostic doctrine that said a human body could never be pure. It reminds us that Christ knows our human life, that he is a sympathetic high priest because he lived like us, tempted as we are, Hebrews 4.15. In chapter, verse 10, verse, uh, part B, he also tells us Christ reigns, that he's head over all. See what that does to the idea of worshiping angels? How absurd is it to worship angels when you could worship the one who created the angels? It's ridiculous. He is the authority over everyone, everything. He has all knowledge. How ridiculous to think that there is someone who has knowledge that Christ does not have or has power that Christ does not have, that there's some new technique that we have found that Christ didn't know about. The next time that you find yourself enticed by some slogan that says, learn the secret of a vibrant relationship, or here are seven tips to a peace of mind, ask yourself this question, do they know something that the Son of God does not? Have they found something that is not known to Scripture? But it gets better. Verse 10 begins, in him you have been made complete. The ESV says, you have been filled in him. 
Literally, you have been fulfilled. It's a familiar passage, but what does it mean? What does it mean that we are complete? Does it mean we don't need to study or learn? Does it mean that we don't go to the doctor when we're sick? In what sense are we complete? In what sense are we filled and fulfilled? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we are self-sufficient. We just saw that we need to continue being built up. Chapter 1, verse 28 says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. So that verse in chapter 1 tells us that we need to become complete in Christ. And this verse in chapter 2 tells us that we are complete in Christ. How do those fit together? Which is it? Well, first, it's the same perfect tense that we saw earlier. It's past action with ongoing effects. But the key is the in him part. Because this tells us that we are complete because of our connection to Christ from our union with him. When we become Christians, we don't immediately become all wise for every situation of life. We don't become all powerful for every trial that we will face, but we are in Christ. And he supplies those things as we need them. So today I may lack the wisdom that I need to handle a trial, but Christ is wisdom from God and I am in Christ. And therefore he supplies me with the wisdom that I need when I ask him for it. Therefore I am complete. Because Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form, and we are in Christ, we benefit from everything that he has every time that we need it. And yeah, there are a lot of ways that our thinking still needs to be transformed, that our desires need to be conformed to Christ, that we need to continue to be sanctified. We are continuing to be completed. But at the same time, we are in Christ, and therefore we have all the spiritual resources to affect that transformation. And we will never lack the divine power to overcome sin We will never want the wisdom to honor the Lord with our lives. We will never be short on the strength to endure hardships. Those things are still being worked out in us, but in Christ we have everything we need. We can be certain that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Praise God. While we continue to walk in Christ, we rely on him for those spiritual resources for every day. But here's why Paul is concerned. Because these Colossian believers who have received Christ are in danger of forgetting what they have in Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And yet when a new worldly idea is advertised on the streets of Colossae, the believers will say, I don't know, I think I'm lacking something. I think I'm missing out. I don't think I have what I need. Uh, Let me try this new thing too. And we do the same thing. And ironically, whenever we do that, We are letting go of the fullness of deity in Christ and holding on to the emptiness of deceit. It's like a rock climber who's got a solid hold on the rock, but lets go of that to grasp at a cloud. Why do we fall for the same old lie? Because we lose sight of the fullness of deity in the person of Christ, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in him. And so Paul goes on in the rest of this chapter, and we don't have time to go into it, but the rest of this chapter lays out the blessings of salvation that believers have in Christ. He describes all the things that we have, resurrection power and the miracle of regeneration. We've been justified and declared righteous. We have no condemnation that he has put the powers of darkness to shame by his victory over them, proving he is Lord of all. And the question for us should be, Can God, the Son, who does all of this for us, provide us with something better than the experts of our day? 
when we feel like we need something more, we don't need to turn to something out there in the marketplace of worldly ideas. We need to look to our perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for divine wisdom. If our lives lack wisdom and spiritual vitality, it's not because we're missing out on certain philosophies and psychologies and ideologies of our day. It's because we already have too many of them. There's no fullness in the world system. There is in Christ. And Paul calls the Colossians and us to walk in him. Some of you here may not be in Christ at all. You have not been rooted in him. And if that's you, I urge you to be reconciled to God today. But if you are a believer, then the admonition is, you've been rooted in Christ. Continue to walk in him, being built up and established in Christ, in whom the fullness of deity dwells. Where to walk, what to beware, and who makes us whole. Let me pray for us. Father, God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the example of Epaphras and just his life and ministry uh, in Colossae. Thank you for how you worked through him to care for this church and love them and love the truth enough to uh, make sure that they were brought back to Christ. Lord, thank you for preserving this book for our instruction that we too may not be deceived and distracted by the deceptions of this world. Lord, help us to recognize the worldly ideas, the human inventions that lead us away from Christ. Help us not to be taken captive by them, to be deceived by them. Lord, help us to recognize the riches of wisdom that are ours in Christ, to pursue him, to seek to know him better. Lord, please continue to uh, grow us into maturity as uh, large, tall trees, as completed buildings. Lord, We thank you for the way that you continue to work in each of our lives and pray that you help us as believers to encourage one another to that end. We commit the rest of this worship service to you in Jesus' name. Amen.